Hi everyone, welcome to Flight Training Australia podcast mailbox edition. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 10, Mailbox Edition. Today, I'm going to answer two questions I've been sent via email. I'm your host, Trent Robinson. This episode's a little bit different. It's my first Mailbox Edition. Finally getting around to answering some of the messages and emails your amazing listeners have sent to me. If you have a question, want to clear up a dispute amongst your colleagues, anything at all aviation related that you want to know a bit more about, send it in. Email me on info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au or you can also message me on Instagram and Facebook. So the first message is from Jess in Perth. Jess is a multi-engine IFR pilot currently flying uh, fire spotting down in Perth there, doing a fantastic job. And she has asked me to give a bit of clear info or clarification on flight into icing conditions. What essentially constitutes known or suspected icing? As uh, we all know, you must not commence a flight into known or suspected icing conditions unless the aircraft suitably equipped. Thanks, Jess. Really great question. So there's a few variables in answering this one. Firstly, the aircraft you're flying. So let's assume that this is a typical light to medium twin aircraft that we're going to come across in GA. Nothing special. No icing protection other than good old pedo heat. Also, where the freezing level is being presented, uh, it can be shown in various forms, but we'll just assume, assume that it's a typical uh, gaff with the information presented as a nominated freezing level. So let's just say the freezing level is 7,000 feet for our example. Now, the requirement for flight and icing conditions is uh, now actually found in Part 91. So Part 91, CASR Part 91, Section 710, flight in icing conditions, requirements for flight. And we have a look into that. It essentially is just saying that the uh, regulation applies when the flight begins. Icing conditions are known or suspected for the flight path along which the aircraft will be flown. Or that the aircraft flies into icing conditions and the pilot in command does not, as soon as practical, change the flight path and try and avoid the icing conditions. So for conditions to be known icing, there's only really one way to do that, in my opinion, and that is to have visible icing on your wings. After Before that point, it's only suspected icing and forecast icing. You can have a forecast freezing level at 7,000 feet and still get no ice. Now, when I say that, for those that don't understand, icing can only form in visible moisture, i.e. cloud. So I could be at or below the freezing level in clear air, and as long as there's no cloud or anything around, I'm just going to be really cold. There's not going to be any ice there. It's uh, nothing's going to happen. But if we fly into cloud, cloud is moisture. All right. So that moisture will hit the wing. It'll get cooled very, very rapidly and freeze to the leading edge and other surfaces of the wing. At that point, we now have known icing. 
we've verified what the forecast says. So if we're in an aircraft that doesn't have icing equipment, we need to do something about it. And there's a couple of options. A, if we know the cloud base from where we enter the cloud, which we should, we can descend. Either descend below the freezing level or descend below the cloud base. So that way, no more ice is going to build and any ice that did build will eventually slowly melt away. If the cloud base is not, uh, sorry, the cloud thickness is not that thick, then we can actually climb, get on top of the cloud, and even though, again, still well below freezing, we'll be out of the visible moisture, the sun will shine on our wings and melt the ice slowly and we'll be okay again. Ice does form quickly. When you see it, it will just hit the wing and pretty much instantaneously you'll see a crystal coating of ice. But that's not going to be enough to cause lift problems and, uh, you know, lots of drag and take you out of the sky. All right, for those that are flying larger aircraft with de-icing equipment, de-icing boots, which are just big rubber inflatable boots along the leading edge of the wing, we actually wait for the ice to build to one and a half to two inches thick before we actually inflate the boots. The reason for that is we need the ice to be solid, uh, form a good crust essentially, and when the ice boots inflate, it will shatter the ice. If it does it too soon, the coating's not thick enough, it will be still a little bit soft, and all it's actually going to do is expand out with the boot and then it will form like a protruded leading edge and there won't be any way for the boot to actually shatter off that ice anymore and then we are in a bit of trouble. All right, so we do need quite a bit of ice to build before we get into strife. So we have an option to climb on top or we descend. The alternative, of course, is probably a third option and that is you could do a 180-degree turn and turn back the way you came back into the clear air. All right, but again... If we're mucking around with icing and dirty wings, want to minimise turning forces if we can just for increased stall speeds, etc. because we don't necessarily know how the wing has been affected. All right, so known icing is really verified by getting it. Suspected is essentially where zero degrees is forecast, where we could potentially get it. So it doesn't mean that we can't fly above 7,000 feet but you need to know what cloud and weather is around and the likelihood of flying into it because if you do fly into cloud below the freezing level, you will get ice. All right, Jess, I hope that answers your question and uh, helps clarify things a little bit more. And second question is from Philip, and Philip's uh, just written in and asking as a follow-up to the how to apply for your first job or how to fly for an aviation job episode, episode six, if you haven't listened to that one. And the question is, what is the attitude of employers in regards to beards or facial hair? Is it a problem? Well, for those that have seen me personally, I have a beard. Um, I think generally speaking in this day and age, everyone's a lot more accustomed to facial hair. Uh, there was certainly a time where it wasn't allowed. Um but I think most employers now are quite okay with beards as long as it's, like always, neat and trimmed 
and uh, looking good. Much the same with uh, tattoos and things, piercings, sometimes piercings, facial piercings might need to be removed if there's too many. But generally speaking, they're okay as long as it's not going to inhibit your ability to perform your functions. One thing where beards do come in um, is pressurised aircraft. If you need to quickly don a mask, a face mask, uh, to seal for smoke inhalation and that sort of thing, obviously if the beard's too big, it's going to cause a problem with that seal potentially. So that is one area you do need to be mindful of. And also certainly with CareFlight and COVID, I had to trim mine right down uh, so that my mask would form a proper seal across my face as well. So I was only breathing through the mask and not the sides and potentially inhaling any virus particles and the like. All right, but otherwise, yep, beards shouldn't be a trouble at all. But as always, check with the employer. They will have a code of conduct and uh, personal presentation uh, perspective and you'll be able to have a look at that. And if there's any dramas, just talk to them. But it is a good question to ask just in case. And probably when you walk in, if no one else has got one, there's probably a good indication for you. All right, so that wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, remember, you can email me any questions you like. Links are in the description for the podcast. I did very roughly touch on Part 91 today with uh, Jess's question there. I have deliberately avoided going into Part 91 so far because there's still a little bit of confusion and some changes going on. But once I get some uh, set clarification from CASA as best as I can for the information available at the moment, I will be doing a Part 91 episode and answer any questions that you might have, flick them through, and I'll try and deal with them. So next week's episode on Monday will be dealing with the follow-up from this week's earlier episode on instructor ratings. We're going to look at flight instructor proficiency checks. What is required to get through an FPC, how to go about it, what CAS is looking at for the presentation of the briefings versus potentially what you're going to do more in a real-life setting. So that should be a good one. Until then, remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, everyone.